When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We rejoin our conversation today with David Bedil. The comedian and writer discusses his relationship with faith and why believing in a higher power is something many of us strive for with mixed results. It's the topic of his recent book, The God Desire. And joining him on stage for this event, which was recorded earlier in 2023, were the comedian, actor and filmmaker Richard Ayoade and the theologian and broadcaster Ben Quash. If you haven't heard the first part, then do jump back to the previous episode and catch up before diving into this one. And if you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, including our exclusive members-only part three, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to the channel via Apple. Members will also get access to our exclusive Bright Sparks quickfire interview with David Bedil too. Now let's rejoin our host Richard Ayoade with more yeah. And yes, what was your response to the question of desire within the book? And and is there a specific kind of desire for God that is different from other desires? That's I a, a hard question. I, I think there is. Yeah. yeah. Well, OK, so the, the, one of the classic statements about desire is St. Augustine, the, the fourth and early fifth century bishop in North Africa, um, who, who says in, the, in his confessions, our, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. He's, he's talking to God. Most of the book is a lot of extended address to God. In terms of desire, and, he also and, says, God, make me celibate, but not yet. Yeah, there's that great one about <laughs> yeah, that. So yeah. co- continence, you know, he wants continence only when yeah. the time is right. Yeah. Um, but the, that, that sense of the heart being restless until it finds its rest is probably one of the most paradigmatic theological statements of what desire for God is. It's the sort of ultimate rest. It's connected with the idea of ultimate rest. And um, we, it's quite proper from Augustine's point of view to desire anything that God has made. So, you know, the world is full of desirable things, and that's good. But the, the problem, as Augustine sees it, is to desire them as though they are, they're going to give you that final rest. Um, even, even those you most dearly love, um, you, you know, they won't ultimately abide. And... You, and so, you know, there's always going to be a sense of loss and so on. So in a way, he's dealing with some of the same anxieties that you describe of losing your parents and losing your best friend. Um, and he, go, he describes these experiences of, of bereavement in the book. Um, so for him, the key thing about the desire for God is that it's the, God is the only object that doesn't let you down in the end. And the, and the way to love things in the world is to love them as, as if you like, 
a, a, a part of your love for God or as a way of loving God rather than as if they were God. Right. So I guess that would be, uh, that's like mm. hiding behind Augustine, but that would be part of an answer that I feel has some interest. But you brought up something there which I think is important, which slightly takes us back to what we were talking about earlier, which is to talk about being very frightened of death can make you feel in a way very narcissistic. Mm. I sort of deal with this in the book about how uh, early on in my life I read about the idea that it was very narcissistic to be very frightened of your own extinction. Uh, and then actually again, I know we've mentioned him a lot, but Updike in Self-Consciousness, which I think you've got there. Oh, that's so, under there, this oh, is right. um, Pigeon Feathers. Okay, Self-Consciousness, he talks about how uh, it's the opposite. Mm. That what you want, if you want your not to die, is you want to be part of the social being. You don't. You want to stay in the party. You want to be with people. And of course, as I've grown older, one thing that's become clear to me as well is that if you want to talk about the front of your head and desires that you know about, other people you love die. Mm, Never yeah. mind you and your own oblivion. Other people you deeply love die. Uh, and the re and actually early on in the book, when I'm talking about me as a six-year-old. I'm praying. Mm. I'm praying to Hashem, which is the Jewish, the Hebrew word for God. And I'm praying that I should see my mum mm. and dad and my best friend Saul Rosenberg again after I die. Mm. Uh, because it is about being amongst people, amongst love and ab about, uh, about the immediacy of, you know, friends and relatives and whatever. So I think that's important in terms of like understanding when I'm talking about the God desire, it isn't just like my own oblivion that mm. I'm talking about here. Well, the end of Pigeon Feathers c could be written for you um, when he's describing at the end, holding these two pigeons. And um, he, he says in the, in the book, uh, the slipping sensation along his nerves that seemed to give the air hands, he was robed in this certainty that the God who had lavished such craft upon these worthless birds would not destroy his whole creation by refusing to let David live forever. Right. Well, that, that's... So just to be clear, if people don't, don't know... So that short story by John Updike is about a, a, a guy who has a crisis of faith and then sees a pigeon feather and is moved by the intricacy hmm. of the pigeon feather to confirm his sense that God must exist because why would so much, as you say, so much incredible apparent energy yes. and thought and, and design particularly beauty and beauty, as well. and beauty, absolutely, go into something. Uh, and that's where we get into an interesting thing, which is, so in this book, I don't spend much time, I talk about it a bit, but I sort of like spend quite a lot of time dismissing certain arguments, like I'm not going to bother with that. So I'm yeah. not going to bother to get into arguments about what existed before the Big Bang, yes. or is there some kind of designer to the, or whatever, because I kind of think those things are basically unknowable. No, and what seems very interesting about the book um, is you talking about what you want, and, you're, and what's uh, so interesting about it is, it's as much a question to you and, and what you feel your desires are and, and what could possibly answer it. Yeah. And, and so I guess along that, here's a question which is, which I guess uh, speaks to what Ben was saying, which is, does this desire for God make us live better, um, live more meaningfully, live in a more worthy way? Um, is that true? And also, I suppose, it seems to me, and this may not be the case, you seem to uh, suggest that, well, truth is a higher value mm. than any conception of this God. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, why, 
would you not write a book called The Truth Desire? As in, why is the desire for truth, imp why is truth important to you? Right. Okay, so that's a really brilliant question. I mean, so the book comes, I guess, from, uh, I do have a thing for the truth. I have a, a notion that I am uh, someone who finds it very difficult to lie, uh, and that I'm always interested in what the truth might be, and that coalesces actually with a thing that I think that we exist at a moment where the truth is deeply under attack uh, in lots of different ways, not just the obvious fake news way. I think that the creation of uh, social media whereby everyone has an individual truth means that there's a kind of babel of truth out there and the very idea of objective truth is kind of suspect uh, and slightly authoritarian and not fashionable at all. And that's in why atheism, which was fashionable at the turn of the century, is not fashionable now at all. And uh, I'm interested in how, despite all that, there might be a way of finding the truth. I think a book about the truth would not be as focused, in, and I, I right. couldn't write an essay book quite in the same way about why I'm obsessed with the truth, but I do keep coming back to talking mm. about the truth being always complex. That, that's the thing. Truth is not is very rarely simple, yeah. and in trying to explain why I think there is no God and why we have created God, what I'm trying to arrive at is a complex truth, and a complex truth about myself. So there's another bit in the book where, can I read this bit? Um, Certainly. Uh, I just want to read a bit because I mentioned at the start, and I think it would be good to sort of follow it up a bit, about being a Jewish atheist, and about how the book also tries to explain what that means, um, and there's one, can you hold that? Yeah, that would be good. Um, there's one bit in the book where, hang on, I'm going to need to find it now, uh, where I talk specifically about what that means. Uh, perhaps Ben can answer the question while I look. Well, this is, yes, well, and how does it, yes. Add to the question, then, the truth question. Yeah. it's kind of about, uh, it seems to me that, that the same, a similar question is raised near the end when you turn to the question of love. Um, and uh, and you say at one point you're not interested in love with a capital L, you know, which again a bit like God is invoked to solve all kinds of problems or reassure us, you know, love is the meaning of everything. Yeah. But you do know, yeah. But you do know that love is real, not capital L love, but love, yeah. you know, in in your particular relationships. And so again, the question might arise as with truth, you know. Why not also the the love desire or the the love delu the love delusion and the love desire? Why that might be another also. Yeah, question. but for me, like what I'm trying to say at that point is that we try and replace the God desire with other things, mm. uh, and for me, it's the same desire. So there's there's this whole coda about the Queen dying yeah. and about how monarchy for me is one version of the God desire, and we saw it in play yeah. in the utter sort of uh, sort of hysterical kind of reverence that went on when, when the Queen died. And the monarchy, the way that it has capitalized words for itself and special costumes and mm. a divine idea and the fact that it moves from the immediate death of the Queen of, of the Queen to the immediate anointing of King Charles, which mm. I think in the book I think I talk about that as an idea of resurrection similar to Doctor Who. Mm. And Doctor Who is a version of God. Doctor yeah. Who is another version of the God desire. These are all versions of the God desire yeah. in my opinion. Um, and uh, I'd what say I'd, that was Stockholm Syndrome with Jules, is what that was. <laughs> with what? Um, well, that's Jules. just my personal view. <laughs> right. um, um, I, I'm going to just read this bit uh, because I, I want to make it clear in the book what, you, what I think you talked about was sort of vulnerability mm. uh, in the book. And the vulnerability comes partly from mm. the sense that I 
cannot, like, I think most of the new atheists are, not all of them, but no, I think most of them are not associated, certainly with a minority uh, that is associated with religion. Mm. Um, and so once you are, I think it's impossible to be completely dismissive of religion in the way that they are. So um, I talk in here about how um, my Jewish identity can't be easily excised from Judaism. I have done jokes that suggest it can, such as this one. People say to me, how can you be an atheist Jew? I say, I don't believe in God, I believe in Larry David. Uh, which for me, that Jewishness is about culture, which includes comedy. But there's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm in which Larry visits some Orthodox Jews to get Richard Lewis moved up the waiting list for a kidney transplant. Maybe best if you just go and watch it. And while staying in a skiing chalet, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. While staying in a skiing chalet with them, he eats some unkosher food. And to restore that plate to spiritual cleanliness, is told he has to bury it in the garden for three days, which is so niche Jewish, even Ard never heard of it. But the point is, the religion hangs around. Being a cultural Jew still involves knowledge of, interacting, being ironic about, having a comic take on, the religion. And sometimes, the irony falls away. A friend of mine, a man of science, an atheist, whose son died tragically young, sang Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead, at the funeral. This is what it means in English. Magnified and sanctified be your name, O God, throughout the world which you have created according to your will. May your sovereignty be accepted in our days, in our own lives, and in the life of the house of Israel, speedily and soon, and let us say Amen. The usual stuff of prayer, the endless OCD-like repetition of praise, the desperate hope that if you say something enough times, a fragment might get through the ether. I do not find it moving. But the Hebrew, or rather the Hebrew, and I print it out in the book, because the sound in my mind carries the association of the script, of the ancient hieroglyphic, because I had to learn it at my Jewish primary school. I can read it. Yit gadal v'yit kadash shemei rabah, b'yalmah defrach harutei, v'yamlech malchutei, you don't have to know what it means. At the funeral, at the burial of a son, those words, just the sound, the ancient music, the sonic pain of them, connects you, the atheist Jew praying and the atheist Jew listening, with centuries of tradition and suffering and defiance. I know I would do the same in my friend's terrible place. And, you know, I'm trying to express there how much I, I understand how identity is intertwined with religion. Uh, and I can't excise it completely. There's, there's another bit where I talk about how Simon Sharma talks about how when Jews were kicked out, the first exile of Jews, Jews have been exiled from everywhere, but the first exile was in Spain in the 13th century, I think, uh, maybe the 14th century. And he talks about how you could still recognize where the Jews were, by their food and by the way they looked and by the way, but principally by their religion. And he talks about how you can still hear the Shema being sung across the waters as they moved. And the point about that is, it's about survival. And survival, the expression of survival from minority is often in the religion. And as such, I can't not feel it. It makes no difference to my belief in the non-existence of God, but I still feel it. 
sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I have one question with regards to Zaya, which I could just put to both of you in terms um, is, have you ever wanted God not to exist? Um, In terms of your conception of it, have you ever thought, Alice, Stephen Fry... Um, in that now sort of rather famous sort of YouTube clip saying the person who allows this suffering, this is not what I would wish to have. Have you felt rage at the the conception of a God? This is outside of God existing or not. Mm. But has that no. been something that's troubled you? No, because I think that, uh, I mean, actually in the book, I sort of provide some straightforward arguments that I, if I was a believer, mm. uh, that I would approach if I was a believer. Yeah. And uh, one of those, if you were in that slightly sixth form uh, argument about like, oh, well, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? I would say if I believe in God, because good is meaningless without evil. Yes. Like the, a world with just goodness in it would be, wouldn't work. Uh, it wouldn't, uh, if God is an artist, uh, and God is telling a story, which is kind of what we want. That's what the God desire sort of is. It's a, a story that our lives go somewhere and make some kind of sense. If it what if that's true, then it makes no sense at all for it to be just a monologue about niceness. So yeah. no, I never thought that. And I think that's one of the very interesting things about the book compared to many other books on atheism is that it seems quite free from anger. Yeah. Which is, a, is that something that struck you? Ben, yes, in terms I, it's of one of the things I, I liked about it a lot. Um, and, 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 and contrasts with a, quite a number of sort of interventions in the name of atheism in, in recent well, most, times. I mean, I haven't read that many, but they do seem quite cross, hmm. a, a lot of atheists. But I'm not, obviously I'm not cross with God, except with the fact that he doesn't exist. Yeah. That's really the only thing I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm annoyed but about. But you're not cross about that either. I'm, well, I'm sort of sad about it. Okay, so in terms of the fear of death, then, is it more sadness about death? And Sorry, do you want to lie down? Um, <laughs> the, um, no, I'm all right. Yeah, okay. Um, but is, is it fear of death? Have you got a notepad? Yeah, it's fine. We're, in fact, we're almost at our time. Um, but, uh, I'm sorry, the reference actually corresponds so 
closely to the actual time running out that okay. it doesn't even count as humor, <laughs> um, like so much of what I say. But um, it's just, that is my own sadness. But is it a fear of God? Um, or a, a, not a fear of God, a, f a fear of death, or a is it no, a, a, a mere, or a sadness? You know, for example, yes, here's a question. Are you sad that there's not a God? As in, do you feel life, why would life be any better with a God or not? I'm just trying to get to the idea of what is it that you're desiring exactly? We've talked about finitude. We probably haven't talked as much about, Ben's uh, raised it, but I guess meaninglessness and purpose, which I guess uh, touches on loving yeah. on order on w what is the point of doing this rather than that yeah in order to write a book you have to have a kind of sense that it is a value where do you um locate that desire as to what is worth while and how does that interact with your idea of the god desire well so i i am when i say that i'm sad that god doesn't exist what I mean, again, is something which plays out, I think, not in a straightforward way. So to say that would imply, like, oh, I'm really joyful because he does now. Right? And I don't think mm. it is as simple as that. Sure. What I'm talking about is, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, let me cop. Hello, it's, it's, he's back again. Okay. Um, let I me, literally just bought that. Let me, <laughs> let me cop to it. I am frightened of death. Yeah. You know, uh, and some people say, oh, I'm frightened of dying, mm. but I don't mind. I'm frightened of death. Yes. You know, I think it sounds shit, death. It okay. sounds like really not as good as life. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not, I think I quote Updike again. I say Updike mm. talks about life in the coffin, imagined as the breathless darkness and the narrow house. I'm not even talking about that. I am yeah. talking about oblivion. Uh, and so I think that, to talk about being sad about that is slightly wrong. It's more, as I say, just a sort of existential thing. It's an yeah. existential, deep, deep sort of like f uh, fear, but at the same time kind of acceptance. Because I do absolutely think that is the case. I do absolutely think that is what's going to happen to me after I'm dead, and that there is no God. So I, I don't think I'm kicking against it. Yes. That's probably why sadness is better than anger. Mm. It's some kind of deep yeah. existential of acceptance of something that I'm really unhappy about. And has the book helped you understand that fear more for yourself? Yeah, I think probably it has. Yeah. I mean... Sorry, this sounds like an enormous name drop, but Tom Stoppard read it, and he said someone laughed at what a name drop it was. But That's it is. good. Yeah, but but he Tom got St it from Jay Z. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Tom Stoppard said, said well, I, I sent him a, a draft. Clearly, he should have corrected the polemic thing. I for mean, a start. unbelievable. But uh, but he said, I'm really enjoying your conversation with yourself. Now mm. I hope. Obviously, it's a book that it's a conversation with myself that other people will not just enjoy listening to, but will relate to. So it doesn't feel like it's just a conversation with myself. But I do think, yeah, I'm trying to work out. I mean, probably you're younger than me. You're like 10 years younger. Or are you even more than that? I'm 40 years younger than you. No. <laughs> um, how, I don't know. How old are you? We'll have to I'm look. I'm 58. OK, yeah, I'm younger than you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so I think one of the things that is happening to me uh, is that as I grow older, and you sort of introduce us with your thing, you've written a th book about theology, is I'm doing something quite cliched, which is as a thinker and a writer and a person, I think, oh, I want to grapple with the big issues. Mm. I want to grapple with the things that really deeply, deeply kind of concern me. And definitely life and death and whether or not there is a God and why I think there isn't is one of them. And it is therefore helpful to write a book that tries to play that out. 
which I suppose brings us back to what you were raising at the start, Ben, which is confessions, that this is mm -hmm. part of a sort of theological tradition of asking questions of our desire and where will we rest. And yes, how do you see uh, this book in the kind of confessional lineage of writing? I think it's, it's um, I think speaking in the first person, having a dialogue with yourself is, has a hugely um, impressive theological pedigree. Uh, and I also think it's one of the most generous things you can do in relation to a wider readership is to actually speak in a genuine, as far as is possible, as a genuine I, you know, yeah. in, in the first person singular, not a and, and try and make sure as far as you can that it's not a constructed I and not a front, not a kind of, a, you know, a fake. Yeah, but that's part, of the, that's part of the truth thing. That's exactly. so part of the truth thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how can I write? How can I be? Yeah. It feels as close as possible to who I actually am, yeah. who I actually think, because that is also something that is more and more being eroded. Yeah. The more and more that we have a self-consciousness, a technological yeah. self-consciousness imposed on us by the ability to constantly have an audience. Yeah. I mean, I know we have an audience tonight, but what I mean is the constant closeness yeah. of an audience that is provided by technology means how can people be normal? Yes. That really worries me. Yes. As someone who wants to try and be as close to, you know, normal is the wrong word, but to who I really am yeah. as possible. Yeah. Yes. But what interests me about that, that there is a faith that underlies that, the risk of writing uh, in the first person with that honesty uh, is partly, I think, sustained by a faith that, that doing that will meet uh, the answering recognition of others who, whose own experience and personal testimony w is you know, congruent with yours or can find, can find points of contact with yours. And that, I, I use the word faith there because that seems to me almost a kind of metaphysical claim or, or, or gamble or assumption that to write at all to use language even at all is to believe we can meet in it yeah and it's not just the truth of rocks i think at one point in the book you use that there's the truth of rocks which is the kind of the domain of the natural sciences you know there's something that isn't there just about physics it's about the medium in which we in which we talk to each other and and can actually genuinely recognize and share each other's thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And that's the metaphysics of that for me is bound up. Mm. That's a religious thing for me. Right. And I'm really interested in, and I think every, everyone, mo many people have a sense of the, no, I have the shareability. A, that's really, of really interesting because, yeah, I have a faith, I do have a faith, mm. perhaps a misplaced faith in language yeah. and in the ability of language to get to some kind of truth that could be shared. Mm. That's what you yeah, just that, expressed. Exactly. It's, for me, that would not be religious, but it would probably be an attachment to it mm. that is an intense, hopeful faith mm. that is something like religion. Yeah. Yes. I sometimes thought, sorry, that the, that the, the sort of dimensions of the problem of suffering. Um, you know, which is one of the big things in relation to Stephen Fry type atheists and many religious people too, that, that the problem of suffering has a, something not completely dissimilar f on the other side, a more positive side from the mystery of language. You know, that in both senses, we're up against something that's very difficult to explain. And in one case, a, a, terrible, a terrible thing um, that there are no explanations for. Um, I don't think you can have a theodicy that sorts out the problem of suffering. 
And on the other hand, there's kind of a wonderful thing that it's very difficult to come up with good accounts of. And I know people do say that we need language and it's all part of Darwinian evolutionary survival. But that doesn't seem to me what, that doesn't account for the kinds of acts of communication and, uh, and, and, and sharing of insight and, and feeling that comes out of a book like that, like yours. So. Well, thank you. I completely disagree. I think it's totally Good. Darwinian. I don't know. I think language is Darwinian. Mm. And what I think you get is species drift. So I think language would originally have evolved in order to, you know, help us find where that animal is or whatever. Mm. And then there's all sorts of things that happen with things that were originally designed to make our lives better as cavemen that we then customize and change as we go on so they don't just fit that mold. And that's what where I think language comes from. But I agree with you that what that, the use that that is then put to is something more. Mm. I agree that it's something more mm. than just rocks. Mm. Yes, and the why of that is interesting. Um, I, I'd have to say at this uh, point that Ben's book Abiding, which also is in the first person, right. um, I think also has a, a, a of great vulnerability in talking about in terms of, I guess, what people think of theological writing as being very third person and dogmatic, yeah. that that's something um, you can I want to say. second hand on Amazon if, if okay. you're allowed. That's lucky. what I want to say. Um, Sorry, but thank you. <laughs> but um, I think we can ask uh, the audience yeah. uh, if they would like to uh, ask some questions. Um, is there are roving mics, I think, um, attached to people. Um, and so, uh, I saw this hand here uh, go up first, uh, this chap here in, in the black T-shirt. Um. Um, hello. Um, hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that was wonderful, all three of you. Um, I, I have to agree with you on a lot of points there. I went through new atheism like a lot of people in this room. Um, I'm a humanist now. You know, I, I, quite actually within my sort of central London humanist group. Um, and I think, similar to you, I've questioned, you know, what, what happens to after death? Is there a meaning to life? Um, and that, that fear, you have to deal with it. You have to face it head on. Um, and for me, I'd love to live forever, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to because, as you said, it, it, it sounds rather boring. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think for me, the best thing we can do is to live life as, as, as well as possible to pass on the knowledge that we have. Um, I mean... Have you got a question? Yeah, sorry, sorry. No, I think it's rather sorry. beautiful what you're saying, yeah. but I just... Yeah. My question is... Um, I thought you were going to sing at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, good. good. Give it time, David. No Mary Poppins here. Um, how do you feel... What, what do you think is going to be the future of, um, sort of that, that religion, that belief, um, going forward sort of in 100, 200,000 years, if we're still around? Well, I, I don't know about 200,000 years, but I do know something, which is that um, about halfway through this book, I thought, uh, you know, uh, why, not why am I writing it for my own sake, but sort of more larger sort of societal reasons, like... Uh, I'm writing about religion and people might think, well, religion, who cares about, but in fact, religion is, I think in many ways on, on the rise. Uh, I mean, you know, it's sort of amazing that 80% of people in America 
still say they believe in God. That's, that's a lot of people. And I read somewhere that the one thing that a candidate for American president could not say they were was atheist. That would be the one thing that would completely disqualify them. Uh, and it's really interesting. And beyond that, there's all sorts of things that were not, I think, expected in perhaps the, you know, the, the end of history idea and the decline of religion. Obviously, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, the rise of Christian evangelical Christianity in, in, the, in the United States. And actually, if you look at the way that Putin talks about going into Ukraine, he talks about it like a religious crusade. So I think the truth is that religion, you know, I mean, in lots of different ways, but actually straightforwardly as religion, is not going away. You know, people will always look to religion as a way of justifying or thinking about how they live their lives, which might be individualized, might, or might also be political lives. I don't know if you've got uh, answer. Yeah, no, I, no, I okay. agree with that. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going... Also, but sort of yes. one small thing, I think also there's a sort of desire which may not always be strictly rel religious in the way we've come to understand organized religion, mm. but the sort of the, the idea of re-enchanting the world and the rise of new kinds of spiritualities, which again don't fit the end of history model and that we're all going to become rational secularists. That yeah. there's, this, there's a huge upsurge of, of magic and... Hippies. Hi <laughs> I know what you're uh, talking about. Alternative spiritualities hippies. is the, I think, <laughs> acceptable term yeah. for this. Um, we've got, there's a question uh, here, yes, uh, in the white, yes. Oh, yes, we can't. Would you mind fully... standing up, because I, I can't, oh, you don't have to stand up, sorry, no. if, it, if it's difficult, but I can't. You wouldn't lie down when I asked you to, That's I don't see why she should have to stand up. That wasn't on a couch. Okay, well. Um, no. All right, I'll speak louder. I was toying between two questions, but I think I'll go for the more serious one. Um, do you believe that everything happens for a reason, or do you believe that in life it's just a question of good luck, bad luck, and just a series of coincidences? Um, I think nothing happens for a reason. I think everything happens by accident, and then we apply patterns to it. That's, that's what life is. That's what I think. Um, I mean, that happens all the time, the patterning. So we're constantly doing that, and you know we're constantly uh, looking at the world. You know, w when a journalist writes a piece, they're looking at random events and saying, "Oh, this is what's actually happening," and we're patterning it. But in my my belief is that everything happens by accident. But I'm kind of interested in what the funny question was. <laughs> hey. When I when I watch a football match and I see the audience putting their hands together like a prayer position, I always think in my head, "Are they praying to God that that's their?" Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I can explain that straight away. So, I went to Chelsea Real Madrid yesterday, and we were we were two nil down from the first leg. And at the moment, you may not know this, but Chelsea are fairly shit. Uh, uh, and when I got there, I said, "Oh, I really, really wish we we're going to win tonight." And I can tell you, I'm not praying to an actual god, but I do know, as I'm saying it, that I sort of hope that that's going to have an effect, right? And and that's mad, but it's the God desire. It's totally the God desire. I think that's the Chelsea desire. Yes, that too. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> that too. well, there's one it question. It work, by the way. Okay, I mean, yeah. how would I know? Um, <laughs> now, here's my, there's a question on the iPad. I'm not just, you know, um, I haven't, I mean, I'm bad with eye contact, but this is a question. Um, so uh, how does our panel, by which I'll say David and Ben, yeah. um, consider the, uh, the idea of joy and the connection to belief or non-belief in God. 
I'm going to go to Ben on that first. Um, well, uh, I think it might connect a bit with beauty, which we were talking about in relation to Updike and the feather. Um, I think that the um, I think that the, the joyous relationship with life is, um, for me, part of that metaphysics I was talking about earlier. And I'm sorry it's such a grand, um, but um, as a mode of relating to the world as amounting to something. Um, uh, so t in a way, it picks up the question of whether things happen for a reason. I don't think one can say specifically that any individual event happens for a reason. But I think that the world, uh, um, almost like, a, it's not a nice image, but also like, almost like a wound that heals itself, you know, it has a tendency towards beauty and a tendency towards the production of delight, um, which uh, asserts itself even when all kinds of scars have been inflicted on it. And it seems to me that joy is part of our way of relating to that aspect of the world. It's production of delightful things, joyous things. Um, and so, so it, yeah, so it's something that leaves a trace and experience of the world, well, the world as gift. We were talking about this just before we went on, that there's a something, a quality of uh, giftedness to the world and joy, as a response, is a recognition that the world is not brute fact, but in some way can be received as gift. So uh, that would be my religious answer to that's that. That's interesting. I, I, I think joy is stuff you can feel about the world that is n not anything objectively, whatever that word means, to do with God. But I think it's, sometimes it's hard to express mm. what joy is without resorting or feeling that God is a way of talking about it. In my first novel, Time for Bed, uh, the main character uh, is quite depressed, but he really loves cats, which is, that is just still true about me. Uh, and he talks about seeing his cat uh, and how beautiful the cat is. Uh, it says something about curving like a Matisse in a shaft of sunlight. And he says that sometimes he looks at the cat and he says, I believe in God. And I kind of think like that we find it difficult to express the way that beauty moves us and feels like we're being lifted to a higher plane without landing on God. Uh, and I, I find myself moved by that expression. I mean, I wrote that thing, but like other, in other places where I read about how something human is being described in terms of how it feels like it's bringing us closer to God. Sometimes that really moves me because what it makes me feel is not that there is a God, but that the thing being described is really beautiful. Mm. So that's how I would mm. how I would think about it. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to hear the full extended version right now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.